Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? A comics podcast with Savage Critics website. Graham McMillan and I are kicking out the jams for episode 84 of Wait What? with an ever-popular and never-ending Q&A round. So kick back for the next hour and 45 minutes as we talk about our recommendations for DC showcases and Marvel Essentials, both real and imaginary, the fall of the sincere age of Vertigo, Alan Moore and the plight of 1963, our free comic book day picks, the damning influence of Big Question Mark, event comics, follow-ups to articles discussed without being read, work for hire versus creator-owned work, Steve Gerber and Fool Killer, Submarine, Elite Squad, our favorite comic book city, and assorted cage matches in Hunger Games. Along with a lot, lot more. We will have more answers coming soon, but nevertheless, we hope you enjoy. And as always, thanks for listening. Jeff Lester! <laughs> yes? <laughs> I'm just happy. Listeners, what you don't know is Jeff was running late, then I was running late, then Jeff was running late again. <laughs> um, I need to think that my Skype wasn't working because for what all I knew, I was like, Jeff, 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 just give me another five minutes, please. And then nothing happens. And I just messaged Jeff being like, is my Skype not working? What's going on? And Jeff sadly had to tell me, no, I'm running late again. Yes. Well, you did see the little message where I was like, hey, no worries, 245's great, right? Did you or did you not? Yeah, but according okay, to my good. clock, it's now after that. Oh, Jesus, it is, isn't it? Yeah, um, right. So you had every right to be alarmed. Or uh, I, was, I, was, I was more worried because at 2.45, I was doing the traditional calling Skype test call to make sure that my headset was working. And I was like, have I fucked everything up? Like, <laughs> try and call and then get a, a busy signal and then give up? Oh, God. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's one of those days. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. And and my hope is, like I said, by or I don't know if I did say this, we should um, some of these problems, tech problems, should be smoothed out at least a little bit. I'm still having some problems, which PowerGrammo, which used to be the most easiest and reliable recording program ever, is now like completely wonky ever since the upgrade, which I've been too lazy to figure out how to try and uninstall. But once I do, that'll get a little more safe. Um, it'll be interesting. I've got a USB microphone in the mail. Uh, which I was going to say, you're actually sounding great right now. Oh, well, that that is because I switched back to the old headset, not the, which is to say the new headset, which um, gives way too much feedback when I go to edit these things. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm hoping that eventually, if not this this soon very soon we will we will start sounding crystal clear and all these problems will be things of the past so. i'm having one of those days where almost everything reminds me of a song so you just say crystal clear reminds me of the fiery furnace is crystal clear uh before that you know the song flash by queen from the flash garden film well yes of course i, I had that in my head as jeff uh <laughs> Jeff Lester's alive! <laughs> that would be great, just because one of us has got to be able to do a Brian Blessed, Jeff Lester's alive! kind of type thing, you know? Does Brian Blessed say that? Yes, did you see him on Twitter the other day saying that? No. no. It was great. Someone retweeted it, I can't remember who it was, but the entire tweet was something along the lines of, Oh, okay then. <laughs> <God's> alive! <laughs> 
Tom Brian Blessed. There was I was reading some review for a movie where I was like, I'm never going to see this, and then it turned out that Brian Blessed was in it, and I'm like, suddenly I want to see this. Do you know what he's in? That's recent. Like it was something where I was like, oh, this is probably going to be a, a piece of crap, and I, then I, something. It's going to be something like Wrath of the Titans, isn't it? He, maybe the, no. Yes, although I swear it was something completely different where he. Oh, I hope it's G.I. Like Joe He's retaliate. playing a judge or, yeah, something like that. Let's see. Where <laughs> the the Hobbit. He's in the Hobbit movie. Oh, see, that would be because uh, he's Pirates Band of Misfits. Mm, no, that would be great. You're so much. Uh, I'm telling you, man, I'm going to upgrade to a Mac. Yeah, I know. That, that, that seems to be it for things that have come out recently. Really? I could have sworn yeah. I saw a thing. Hold on. It's not Kika and Bob, clearly. Uh, yeah. No idea. Wow, he actually played him. He actually played Prince Voltan in The Family Guy. That's kind of awesome. Oh, um, or is it really? Is it? Well, it would be if it wasn't The Family Guy. Yeah, I guess. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's when it kind of gets a little bit sad. <laughs> Although I said it's Brian Blessed. Brian Blessed, like Tom Baker, is one of these actors who's pretty much made a career out of goodwill for that one role mm-hmm. do you know what I mean like everyone's like oh remember Brian Blessed he was great as Prince Voltan or remember Tom Baker he was great as Doctor Who and it's like they've made a career after that of just being hams yes well that's it there, there, there's something about their hamminess that is you know at least for me oh the, he's in, I think he's in the it said he was in The Raven I don't know if that's true or not now because he wasn't listed in the IMDB but this AV Club review of The Raven which I have to sit where John Cusack plays Edgar oh, Allan Poe the trailer is spectacular I honestly think when I first saw the trailer I thought it was a funnier die joke yes I did too I was like this is by far like even I, I would have to say that, that Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter looks like a better, more more real. respectable <laughs> film. Like a more respectable film. There was just everything about that trailer. Anyway, but yes, the fact that Brian Blessed is supposedly popping up as a newspaper editor early in the movie, according to this review I'm reading, suddenly I was like, oh, but this could be fucking brilliant. You know no, what I mean? Like, t- it'll be terrible. Don't go down that road. <laughs> just don't. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be really, really bad, Jeff. You're don't do it to yourself. So you're saying maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying rush out first day. Okay, all right, because that I can certainly do. Actually, I don't think I can do that at all. Like, God bless him, I was at the comic store yesterday. <laughs> I love that you seem to have actually given that some weight. Actually, I don't think I can do that. No, I'm yeah, I'm like, mm, telling yeah, you could I? <laughs> well, you know, because, well, let's put it this way. The reasons why I would do that would be to mortify you. Because then when I'd be like, good news, I did just what you said, but it was terrible. You'd be like, God, no. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I, I just don't. Laugh. Or maybe hang up. That would be the greatest. <laughs> <laughs> just go click. Ah, uh, that would be great. Wait, what? The quarreling years. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> that would be lovely. So, um, my God, thank you, everyone who submitted 9 million questions. This is going to be a comedic free-for-all. And, and I don't know, Graham, we don't have to jump into it, because Lord oh, knows, I, I think it's not like we're going to get through them all. So, well, I but. think we should jump into them so, so we get through at least some. Yes. Because, as I said before, we have a hard stop. So, right. it's one of these things that if we don't just run into them, right. then we're not gonna, we're going to get like two done. Well, see, in the past, we've had a full two hours, and we've started at five minutes in. The problem is our answer is 
takes 35 minutes. That's, that's, that's where our problem is. That's okay. why we have oh, to I go. We have to just get it done. Mm. But I want to start with the questions from Matthew Murray and Eric Group from the comments for the last podcast. Yes, please. Because we asked questions before they even knew that we were looking for questions. Yes. That so I'm going it. to. Jeff, questions. Yes. One. This is Matthew Murray. So actually starts off by going questions, which is oh, great. Um, ignoring any not buying Marvel or DC stuff, what are the top three Marvel Essential and DC Showcase Presents volumes? What three series would you like to see released in this format? Man, that is tough. Um, well, DC Showcase, one of the top ones has to be the Brave and the Bold. I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. Like, just, just this, for this sort of pound for pound right. chewing satisfaction, those three volumes of the Brave and the Bold, uh, halfway through one, but all of two and all of three yeah, is yeah, just definitely. the most fun, satisfying kind I, of I would say the comics. Is maybe the best one. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too is the one where they're just kind of... They're hitting their stride and it's just getting weirdly crazy as opposed to by the third one. It's not that it's getting like tiredly crazy, but it's... I don't know. It's it's familiar enough that you're not... Exactly. The fuck get, is happening? You get the you get the sense that they have sort of... E- even even with it being kind of kooky, it's still kooky in a, in a formulaic way, I suppose. Whereas yeah. like in volume two, you get the sense that even they don't know how they're going to pull off what they're doing. Exactly. Um, I'm really excited this week, or maybe last week, uh, Showcase Presents All-Star Squadron came out, Mm. which I'm really, really curious to read because I remember as a kid really enjoying the Earth 2 stuff that Roy Thomas was doing. Right. Uh, And so the idea of getting, I think it's 20 issues Mm. uh, for $20, I'm sure. I'm all in favor of that. Yeah. let us also mention the absolutely stellar Showcase Presents The Trial of the Flash. Uh, yes. Uh, Showcase Presents Justice League as well, the first couple of Justice League. Yes, exactly. Volumes, volume 5, which you uh, got me hooked on, <laughs> is uh, some amazing stuff from Mike Friedrich, which I just find, like, astonishing. Uh, I really like the... I think it's maybe the end of the first and most of the second volume because it's Mike Skowski being weirdly blocky. If that makes sense. There was a point where he was like kind of shifting into his own thing Mm -hmm. and the characters looked weirdly broad and blocky and I love it in black and white. I think it looks amazing in black and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, For for the Marvel Essentials, the, the Lee Kirby Fantastic Four. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, it's pretty hard for me to um, not adore anything that is a Marvel showcase, even even the stuff that everyone else, I mean, Marvel Essential, even the stuff that, that people find disposable. In fact, I will go one step farther in that regard, in that if you're like me and you've begun the transition to digital or have, you know, or it way into the digital comics, I spent a ridiculous amount of money last year collecting um, the DVD releases of the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Iron Man, X-Men, and Spider-Man and Captain America, which has essentially um, 600 issues or so of each title in a PDF format, which is very easy to read with, with good reader on the iPad. So, but... So interestingly enough, I had these huge chunks of, you know, the Avengers and Captain America. And part of me was like, well, I kind of don't need these essentials because now I have them A in color and B on my um, 
um, on, you know, it, it, essentially in a shelfless format. That's the way mm-hmm. I like calling it, shelfless. But I know, I mean, not only did the program end and you have to, you know, sort of scavenge for them in true post-apocalyptic fashion on eBay uh, in order to get them, but there's, of course, a ton of amazing Marvel stuff that you cannot find unless you're going to start hunting hunting down quarter boxes. So my argument is, um, because in theory, like, for example, Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four Arguably, if you are a a real bargain hunter, you can probably find like the color um, Marvel uh, archives of Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four. But it's much harder to find something like uh, Steve Gerber's Defenders. Yes, um, or or the um, all of Marvel Two and One is available as Essentials. Yes, which is right. just I when well, all they're missing like the the license stuff, so there's no like ROM issue or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's I mean that's great. That's actually that genuinely is one of my f- top three Marvel Essentials, the Two and yeah. One books. I think they're just spectacular. Yes. And yeah, it pro- for me it probably is fantastic for Defenders and Two and One. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so for me, as much as I love the Fantastic Four and that stuff is seminal, and even in, in especially when you've got Kirby and Senate in black and white, it's stunning. There's part of me that would say that, uh, like for a for a huge true Marvel fanboy, part of the pleasure for me in in the Marvel universe, especially when I was growing up, is all the the B and C and even D list characters that will probably it will probably take. Nine million years before they ever come into uh, a, a true digital collection. Mm-hmm. So I would say, like, if you can find some of the crazy, the Marvel horror stuff, yeah, the Marvel horror books are insane. They are truly insane, and there's just some absolutely spellbinding work by guys who are not hacking it out. Uh, except when they are, who have absolutely no idea what they're doing, except but, when they totally are. But there's something about the way they're hacking them out, if that makes sense. Like oh, they're, yeah. they're hacking out in a very weird Marvel 1970s way, where yes. that is somehow oddly enjoyable and of its time. Oh, agreed, agreed. And in fact, I, I adore that stuff. So th- therefore, like when you come across someone, like it becomes very easy. And this is one of the things that's actually I'm, I might get to later based on one of the questions. Someone like Doug Monick, whose work I adore, um, he really was, even though he was writing 20 titles a month, he was, I never felt that he was hacking it out in a way that I think, God bless him, Jerry Conway ended up doing, like, in some issues of Marvel Team Up or mm-hmm. God knows, you know, mm-hmm. huge, huge chunks of his Marvel and DC career. So, so yeah, I would say actually kind of experiment, dive in, go for the, 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 the low-key characters, and of course, for myself, I know I talked about it last year, but I absolutely adored the Marvel, um, the the Marvel Masterworks of the Black Panther, um, recollecting issues six through twenty-four of Jungle Action by Don McGregor, Rich Buckler, and Billy Graham. It's in color, so it's not really an inexpensive uh, essentials, but you might be able to find it cheap. It's fantastic. That and the original Ditko Doctor Strange in color. Um, Marvel Masterworks are, I think, my my two absolute faves in terms of a collection that you have in one piece that um, is actually affordable and yet still pretty high quality. Can you think of the three series that you want to see released in Essentials or Showcase format? Mm, man, it's that, really rough, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is so hard. Well, I, I will be honest. I mean, it's it's 
it keeps threatening to happen and keeps getting canceled out but i think that um john ostrander's suicide squad as a showcase um seems to me kind of essential you know like i would love to see that uh i would also love to see perhaps as a digital collection the the wasteland series that he and del close did for yeah. dc and it's not vertigo days that had some amazing amazing stuff in it and uh, I, i'd love to see some vertigo books get some showcase I, yeah, don't know if, I don't know if that would be crossing the streams or whatever, but I mean, if they did, you could probably do all of Peter Milligan's Shade in two books. Mm. Definitely all of the good right. Shade in two books. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, the idea of the essentials that's kind of great is, uh, in the showcases is that they're almost disposable and they allow you to take in huge chunks. So something like uh, Hellblazer, which has had many highs and lows, but as far as I know, has nothing even close to a complete trade collection yeah, it's, representing its, yeah. its run of issues. You know what I love? Mm. Books of Magic. John Neil Reber's Books of Magic. Oh, you know, that's really interesting because uh, because we had a question about that, I noticed. And, uh, yeah, Did we? I didn't actually see that question. Well, I, I, unless I'm mistaken, just someone asked about when Tim Hunter's coming back, I think. so. Uh, I love that series way back when. Um, and actually, I'm thanked in one of the trades for that way back when. What? Tell no, me really. more. I, I, I was, I was, I'm in the letter column of that. Um somewhere in there uh, and I get thanked in, in the collection of, the, of whatever issue that was fan-fucking-tastic that's and it's, it's, it's anyone who has their books of magic back issues um, I want to say it's it's early it's like maybe the first year wow um, and it was me as an incredibly incredibly sincere art student that I was at the time Mm-hmm. Whereas I, I have, I actually have a letter in an early issue of Transmetropolitan as an incredibly sincere Jeff Lester. It was, it was the nineties. We were all yeah. very sincere. We were all very sincere in a way that, that is somewhat embarrassing to look. At. I was, I was actually thinking about that yesterday. Uh, the fact that that era of Vertigo mm-hmm. was like a sort of sincere thing, and then everyone went through, and by everyone, I mean the creators and the readers. Yeah went through some sort of like irony phase mm. which is then turned into some sort of you know snarky phase well, do you know what I mean like I, I feel the culture right. sort of has moved so far away from the very sincere I am feeling everything so deeply you know excuse me while I wear black and cry mm-hmm. thing which in many senses is good because I think there really was a lot of um Emo sincerity, for want of a better way of putting it. Well, let's let's put it this way: Would you say that essentially the most successful books in Vertigo, uh, following Game and Sandman, did so precisely because their creators were able to create essentially anti-Gaiman personalities? You know, like because that that's sort of I, that no, emo I, sincerity. I would, would, I would I would say there was a point of that, but I think when you add things like White Last Man and Fables back into the mix, yeah, but that's pretty I, late. I think, yeah, but I think that what you see is like a, a heading, not heading back towards Galen, but definitely right. heading away from the you know the Ennis, the Morrison, and to see, an that's, extent, the, and Ellis. And, to me, Ennis, yeah. Morrison, and Ellis all specifically created personas that were various variations of an anti-gaming persona, I think. Yeah, but um, then I think it headed out, is what I'm saying. I think there's definitely a period of backlash. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and it, I think it's interesting that the, the important vertical titles, looking back on it, mm-hmm. are not the are not DC's attempts to recreate Sandman, but the other ones that that are the backlash titles. Right. And then once DC stops trying to push Sandman down everyone's throat, that's mm-hmm. when you get Fables, which is much closer in tone. Well, this and this is the thing that I think is interesting because I would argue, and I could be wrong, that by the time you get Why the Last Man and Fables and whatever the third t- title was that was kind of trying to get out the gate at that point, um, you have... I think you what you have is like great work, but you also wouldn't have what I would call great personal work. You know what I mean? Like I as as much as I adore everything that Vaughn did with Why the Last Man, I don't feel that his who he is and his persona, like he made no attempt to tie to tie that together as much as the way that Morrison and Ennis and Ellis could all claim that their titles were essentially reflections of their character, I suppose. It's very sure, hard, but I, I think, to yeah, settle the personas. Brian, I think outside of Brian Wood, I don't think any creator really does that anymore. Well, yes, and that's what I, that's what I would say, is, is that once you got past Morrison and Ellis and Ennis, and I think at each level of that, there's an additional layer of irony or distancing that starts to become snark like you said apart from wood after that point i think that that essentially the the era of the the vertigo creator as persona sort of slides into the like sort of disappears but similarly it it moves from being passion works to something closer to just good or bad works you know which mm-hmm. i which i think on the one hand is both a sign of encroaching, uh, of increased maturity, I, I suppose, but also in a way sort of has a somewhat diminishing ability to, to personally invest or over-invest in, in the part of the fans. It's strange, isn't it? Because I too was thinking, you know, it's it's a sign of increased maturity, but there's also something sad about it. Mm-hmm. I, I miss right. the books that you feel the creators had to do. Yes, do you know what I mean? Yes. I miss I miss mm-hmm. books that you felt that they really desperately had to get the story out. Sometimes to the story's detriment, but it was so passionate. Yes, I, yes. I think there's a Agreed. lot to be said for you know they're really thinking about the, the audience more now, and they're thinking about the story, and they're being more professional. But it really, I do miss the the idea that you're reading something that someone has to tell you. Yes. Yes, I agree. I, I, I do too. And it's one of those weird, like, because I think honestly, um, and this may something be something that we would have to look at later, I kind of think that despite everything that we talk about critically and or uh, I suppose organically and, and in a go team comics kind of way that we want the former, really I think the majority of us ended up in comics and being fans of comics because of the latter, you know? Yeah. No, I think I think you're that, entirely. Yeah, so it's it's kind of I I was thinking about this. It's it's very much, um, you know, we don't we we you know I think for the good of the medium and for various other issues, I think there's all of, there's a lot of us that are very driven to yeah to make it be more professional and good works and things like that. But but the fact is we celebrate the the stuff that is wonky and off kilter and too personal in a way that that's that feels incredibly essential you know so i agree 
Hooray! That okay. and I'm impressed because that was only 20 minutes for the first question. So uh, yeah, it's, it's one of Matthew Murray's four questions, and the next <laughs> really, really big. So we might only get Matthew Murray's questions today. Okay, number two. Do you think the situation with Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, in 1963 can be related to what's happening with Alan Moore and Watchmen? How? I'm really tempted to say I think there's a connection, but I don't think you can really say there's a parallel. Oh, that's actually a great, great um, comparison. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, You know, it's interesting. For whatever reason, I always wondered why um, Steve Bissett and Alan Moore fell out because, you know, all we have is Bissett's famous recounting where he was, you know, just begging Moore to talk to him and, and, and tell him what he did. And Moore was just never talk to me again, Steve. And and I do remember because, I mean, that does seem to happen to Steve Bissett a lot, it seems. But I, I kind of had that moment of like, oh, right. I wonder if like Alan Moore just got so pissed at Steve Bissett bugging him about 1963 that he told him essentially to fuck off, you know. Because um, I do that think, would be really sad, wouldn't it? Well, okay, it would, literally not. No, but if that is the core of right. the friendship time, then he's just like, I can't bear to hear you ask one more time when I'm going to do something with the hypernaut. Right, right. Well, but I mean, but uh, and I guess how do I put this? I mean, in my regard, of course, in my fantasy scenario that I've constructed, I feel an incredible amount of sympathy because Moore, in his very low, too low key, passive aggressive way, is trying to draw boundaries that Bissett keeps stampeding across. Um, I my thing is is that the whole 1963 thing is in its way regrettable, but for me, once once a year or two had gone by and there was no way that it was going to be published to me it was it wouldn't have been worth reading you know like as much yeah. as i love the idea of of the 1963 titles i not just the idea i actually loved the execution of them because they were such fantastic um pastiches of of super early marvel comics by the time but the other thing yes I was going to say, I, th- I think they were good characters as well. Yes, I think yeah, beyond no, I, that's it. I thought they were good characters. Yes, no, exactly. I mean, I I was... There's a few of those books that I read multiple, multiple times and actually kind of miss. Like, there's just enough differences between The Fury and Spider-Man that, I, that there are times where I'm like, God, I wish I could read more episodes of The Fury. Or, weirdly, there are ways where Horace, Lord of Light actually really gets me excited and intrigued um, about Egyptian mythology in a way that Thor only kind of, sort of got me excited about Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I would I, in, in a way, I would love to see those characters again, but where more was going um, with the annual was a very specific set of concepts it seems to me as far as I could tell from all intents and purposes of contrasting 1993 with 1963 that I don't think would be that interesting in 2003 2013 or 2023 you know what I mean like at that point because it it doesn't because the game's rigged and it's lost you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it it just wouldn't be trenchant in any way. I mean, it would have historical curiosity, but I can't really see that that would be something that that necessarily more would be interested in. And considering the degree to which I feel the Moore's animosity 
toward DC buying Wildstorm out essentially so that he would be working for them again. Like as he's gone on to paint that as it's something that he felt forced to do, I have a sneaking suspicion that for him, the idea of collaborating with Jim Lee would be kind of odious and it would be impossible to conclude it without doing that. Yeah. I, I have, I, at this point also have very little interest in seeing the conclusion of 1963, but I'm not sure if the question is, well, that's true. If the question's about that, or if the question's that, yeah. more, yeah. well, he owned this, and then he fell out with Steve Bissett, so we'll never see 963 again. What if that had happened with Watchmen? And ultimately, what if it had happened with Watchmen? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a what if. And yeah, I, I mean, I don't fully know. Oh, sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I won't cut you off. Please no, finish. what I was going to say was, uh, if it had fallen out of print, then it would be like... Mm-hmm. Marvel Man or Miracle Man. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it wouldn't have lost its power. It would have gained power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The back issue still right. would have been available. People well, God, still no. would have read it. Mm-hmm. The the back issues of 1963 are really hideously easy to to find inexpensively. They were um, there was way too much over speculation on those books. Uh, well, I remember in junior yes. time where it was like, Alan Moore's writing for Image. Holy shit. Yeah, everybody apparently lost their mind. And there are dudes that, you know, Bissett and Veach um, both got huge paydays for that, which they I'm sure they were really excited about. I can see their frustration in, in not finishing it up. But it, it here's, here's, I guess my answer to, to Matthew is, at least from some of the statements that I have seen from Bissett and I think Veach, they, because I believe Bissett has promised that there will be more Hypernaut books. Whether or not there actually were, are, I kind of doubt, but no, I think no, that's there because were. of Bissett. There were. Okay, right. So I feel that, you know, if nothing else, Bissett and Veach have the freedom to create more stories with those characters, it seems to me, like, as is their right as co-creators, unless there's something that's locked out of it. I've, um, I'm not sure about that. I want to say that the Hypernaut might be this weird... Like exclusion to the rule, like, he's, it, like it was he's, created before they were used. Or he's the one character that got away, or something. Mm, could be, could be. That would be interesting if so. If that's the case, then that's worth exploring. But, um, but yeah, my thing is, is it's a very different thing from, at least for me, if Moore is saying I don't want to participate in the conclusion of 1963, and it takes money out of these guys' pockets, as opposed to more turning around and saying, hey, I'm doing all of these characters and you have no say in it, or alternately, I don't want anything to do with these characters, therefore you can never touch them again. And and even still, there's a way in which part of me is like, that still seems so different than than the before Watchmen scenario to me. Um, Okay, here's here's the third question, which kind of ties in with that then. In the hypothetical situation or imaginary story where Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons get the rights back to Watchmen, what do you think would happen if Moore decided he just didn't want Watchmen published again? What do you think the reaction would be if he just said this was what he'd do if he got the rights back? Would people start supporting DC? Uh, I don't know they wouldn't. Yeah, I I mean, that's the thing. There's plenty of people who are still supporting DC now. So, I mean, you know. And and the people who aren't supporting supporting DC aren't aren't not supporting DC because they think that, you know, Watchmen would go away. That feels like such a, a weird disconnect. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, and he, there is something that I think you you mentioned just very much in passing with Miracle Man, but that I feel is really true is that in the year 2012, the lack of something on the shelves no longer means what it meant 20 or 30 years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I really feel that at that point, there are people who would probably feel entirely more comfortable, just as comfortable going into Watchmen and grabbing a torrent of off it if, if it went away. There's still a million copies in print. There's still a book. Sh- there's still a copy on most of the major library bookshelves, which is not something that you know we had in 1972 or 82 or or even really 92. I would say. I mean, apart from the few copies of Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and Mouse that you could find in library shelves, uh, some library shelves. So to me, there's there there's such a weird disparity between it used to exist and now it doesn't as opposed to something not ever existing like they used to seem pretty much like very close to the same thing and now they're they're vastly different yeah i i think the fact that if you really want and you have an internet mm-hmm. connection you can read all of miracle man and all of zenith to go for another strip that's completely tied up in rights issues exactly i i think that just proves that you know if alander said that he didn't want watchmen published again it wouldn't really matter yeah if if anything it would build the legend more exactly it's sort of the way that it has with with marvel man um and and i feel that again there's this weird subsets of subsets of subsets you know where you know marvel man has i think incredible power as a sort of somestat text and then of course people who there's a, a what you know a huge chunk of of a certain segment of the comics population that is comfortable like buying that and reading it but i think i honestly my theory is is that the idea that alan moore would have nothing to would not publish watchmen anymore when it's like one of the when it made times list of top 100 novels i don't see that happening I, I really don't. I mean, I could see things where the rights absolutely 100% get completely fucked up, you know, in, in some can, kind of worst-case scenario where they end up in the hands of, um, you know, Brett Warnock's ex-wife when Top Shelf falls apart or something like that. But, you know, but... <laughs> Sorry, uh, Brett. What, what, yeah, exactly. what I'm kind of really curious about is, and this is totally getting so hypothetical because there's no way this is going to happen, before Watchmen comes out, Watchmen falls out of print. Alan Moore and David Gibbons own Watchmen. Who owns before Watchmen? Uh, right. Um, right, that's a really good question, isn't it? Because at that point, you have like, to wonder who owns the characters. But, but it, yeah, exactly. That's, that, that's, where, it get, that's where it would get <laughs> yeah. weird and interesting. Yeah. And I'd be really curious to see what would happen. Um, but it's also never going to happen. <laughs> so, right. yeah, whatever. It just isn't. Uh, also, would people start supporting DC? No, because the people who would support DC for that reason are the people who are already supporting DC. Yeah, agreed. Um, and also the people who are already supporting DC in like the Superman trial mm-hmm. or, or Marvel in the Kirby trial. So, yeah, I, right. I think they're just different people. Uh, right. Number four. number four. And complete change of topic. What free comic book day comics are worth checking out? I have no idea because I haven't been paying attention to the list, so I get to punt to you, Graham. I I don't know either because I've not read any of them. <laughs> well, well, you know which ones are out, right? Uh, like, yeah, what seems like a good deal? Yeah, I can look up the, 
the new list again. Because I'm sure there will be something where you're going to be like, ooh. I'm, I have to admit, I'm really curious about the Dark Horse one this year, just because it's um, new Serenity and new Star Wars by Zach Whedon. I just think that it could be interesting. Uh, hmm. The DC one is apparently very important for continuity for people who care about that. Oh, um, right. The Archaea one is the hardcover, the 48-page hardcover anthology. Wow, that'd be pretty. Uh, let's see what is going on. Hilariously, I've already gone through like the gold books because I'm like, yep, none of them are that interesting. Uh, let's see. Animal Planet's World's Most Dangerous Animals. I think that's a must-have for everyone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, by all means. What is actually coming out? Oh, mate, um, Fancy Graphics is doing the Censored Howard Cruise. That might be interesting. Dynamite is doing Dinosaurs vs. Aliens, the Grant Morrison Liquid Comics uh, craziness, which I'm going to be picking up just because it's free. Come on. Wow. Uh, um, yeah, that's kind of it. Valiant, maybe, if you're curious to see what Valiant's going to look like. Uh, Barnaby and Mr. O'Malley by Crockett Johnson, I think, would be interesting because, of course, Crockett Johnson's... Uh, Barnaby stuff is a huge influence on a certain cut cut of uh, cartoonists from the period. So I would I've heard many wonderful things and have never actually read it. So it's not an incredibly inspiring list this year, has to be said. Yeah, I mean that's me. I, it's wow, I'm at the bottom of the list already. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's you get to the bottom, you're like, <sighs> so I guess there's nothing that great coming out. Yeah, uh, I mean it's I appreciate the DCs trying to put some sort of oomph into their thing, but yeah, I suppose the Moomin heard good things about Moomin, you know, which I still haven't checked out. So, but yeah, there's a boy. There's just not Burt Ward Boy Wonder. What? It's a Blue Water Comics. They already have um, Adam West Adventures or something like that, and this is the spin-off title. I, I really genuinely sound, I wish that I could say that was a joke, but it's not. No, I know. I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> and you know, there's people like Mouse Guard, which I guess that's the one that's... That's the hardcover, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which I mean, uh, not, my, not my cup of tea, but many people adore, so... Yeah, short version, go into the store and see what's fun. Yeah. I, there's nothing that really stands out as must-haves for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, it's free. How bad can they be, really? Right. Eric Group asks questions. Uh, yes. He also apologized in advance for all of them. What's with the lack of all the waffle talk in the podcast recently? I know. That's terrible, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I, I've been to the waffle window lately. I like You it. have. You should talk about it then, man. Dude. <laughs> why, do you, why do you want me to tell you? Although, when you come here... Sir, God. I kind of hope that it rains because now there's an inside part of the waffle window to order when it's bad weather. Really? Yes. Oh man, that's fantastic! It's the yeah, worst yeah, idea yeah. ever. Yeah. No, I think it I think is terrible backup. You know, I think maybe what I should do is when we're we're up there, I should try and photograph all the waffles that I eat, and then <laughs> and then I can and then post put an animated gif. Oh God, that would be the best. Actually, that, and then, and then maybe some sort of like stop motion slideshow of me being forcibly thrown out of the restaurant. That would also be awesome. So, we yeah. we, we can make that happen. Um, no, we haven't easily. had waffle talk in the podcast. I don't, we just haven't. There's been no I, well, because I've ducked. I, I I've been trying to eat a little healthier pre and post cleanse. So I honestly have not had a waffle in a while. Not even like when I was experimenting heavily with the the frozen stuff. So. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have much um, to, to say waffly, which is a shame because it's really, you know, it's a fun topic. <laughs> 
So, yeah, that's why. But unless Graham's going to start eating waffles uh, and talking about it copiously, it, it might be a while uh, until I visit. I feel like I should definitely have a waffle this weekend in order to talk about it next weekend. I'm going yeah, this weekend. I'm having a waffle for you, Eric. Yes. Oh, man. Is, is Graham awesome. in the pocket of big question mark? And if so, what are the perks? <laughs> I don't even know what this means. <laughs> I... I I made the joke about the Mr. Ron yesterday, but really, I, I have no idea what this question means. Who Who is his big question mark, a Flex Mentello character? No, I, well, I, maybe? Is he? I don't think so. I, uh, I just thought it was question mark and the Mr. Ron's who did 96 tears, but uh, I, I couldn't, I honestly don't know what that means beyond that. Eric, please leave a comment to explain that. Is it, I, the best thing think... Is it because I ask so many questions in the headlines of my blog at News? That's what I was thinking at the blog at Newsarama. Yeah, that's going to be yeah. the closest thing that I can come to is that you're okay. actually getting paid is, by the court. Is, is it that, Eric? And if not, what is it? Right. There we uh, what are your top three event comics from Marvel or DC that have been published after the year 2000? Oh, event God. <laughs> Jesus. Um, does, does 52 count? Yeah, I think so. Well, I don't know. I think yeah. I, let's say that it does. I okay, mean, then, Lord then knows I, it was promoted like an event. Okay, then that's there. Uh, right. Seven soldiers. Yeah, seven soldiers was fantastic. Um, and I'm really struggling for a third one. I mean, you know, there's elements of. I mean, as 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 much as I think there's. Sloppy. I have fond memories of Batman R.I.P. and Final Crisis in ways that I don't think their titles live up to. And and also, their th- Morrison being Morrison, some of the high watermarks in those, especially the Final Crisis tieovers uh, for Superman um, and kind of Batman, uh, I thought were wonderful. I have so. to say, the addition of these seven extra pages for the absolute Final Crisis does make me kind of want to buy it. Mm, what? Why? What? Where are they throwing in there? Like seven? There, there's seven pages. brand new pages by Morrison and Doug Mankey. Oh, those cocks! That's, I know. That's and really I'm like, you fuckers! It's actually really because when they initially solicited it, it was exactly the same content as the hard, first hardcover that came out, right? With no additional. And then, yeah. they, then they cancelled that solicit and said, "We're putting in the Batman tie-in issues, right. and we're putting in seven new pages and the content from the director's cut." Wow. Yeah, that and, well, and they the Superman, but Superman Beyond was already going to be in. Was there. was already in there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I I think actually yeah that it, it, once I heard that there was the Batman and the Superman Beyond stuff all in one volume, it became I don't know. It's kind I, of I tempting. Yeah, like yeah, not full on tempting for me, but there's a certain amount of interest there because again, it didn't quite work out for me. Um, oh, you know what the the um, Green Lantern Sinestro Corps War. Oh yeah, you know. Uh, I, th- I thought that was I thought that was really well done. Yeah, I I enjoyed that when I ended up reading it in trade. Like I remember coming in at it at the very last issue, which I thought was kind of a phenomenal last issue. Uh, and I also want to say that um, it was a mess, and there's stuff about what I think about. There's things that it said that I don't think it either lived up to or presented some very uh, icky undercurrents but i thought i thought blackest night did what it was supposed to do yes. you know in terms of an event comic that yep. sort of you know it, highs it, and lows aside it delivered yeah you know? here's something interesting i read um fear itself the collection the other day mm. wow fear itself the collection reads much better than fear itself the individual issues 
much better. Really? Yes, it has the momentum that the individual issues don't, to the point where, I mean, all the same problems are there, but you end up kind of not giving a fuck. Because mm, it just keeps moving. Because it just keeps going. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I can't see any way in which I could forgive its oversights, which I just think are egregious. I mean... Oh, I, it, no, I, I was there with you, but I yeah. swear, in a collection, it reads so much better. I believe it. I do believe that. I can't necessarily, but, you know, I'm still... I'm, also, part of me is still like... Yeah, but, you, yeah, you read it over and you know how it ends, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. you actually get points where you're like, well, this is where this part, this character just drops off. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. this is where, you know, this doesn't make sense. I mean, it's funny reading it now. Yeah. Knowing what I know, quote unquote, and right. and just seeing the it just almost becomes more cynical, right? Because you know, well, yeah, death and everything. You, you're like, did yeah. you do that in two issues? Or, or the yeah. foreshadowing for Thor's death mm-hmm. is hilarious, <laughs> but uh, it almost seems I don't know. It almost seems more forgivable because you're reading it in one sitting, right? Yeah, I can see that, where suddenly it seems like a... Um, a it becomes a, a really trashy, trashy story. Right. Sort of like a Michael Bay movie that yes. just kind of, yes. you know, yeah. the, the velocity holds you there, I guess, in a yeah. way. Um, Definitely. Interesting. I would have to, you know, because I was like, shit, well, i got to say something about Marvel, you know, because I'm just like, I can't, like, leave them totally out of the lurch. But having jumped away from event comics, I mean, I adored the fact that... Marvel really didn't do any event comics between 2000 and until Civil War in like 2004, right? And Civil War um, six was it six? Well, yeah, I guess it was 2006. Was uh, was Civil War? So, um, so yeah, they had, they had a good run of not having events. Yeah, which is kind of awesome. And then they just really, you know, double trucked it. I know a lot of people loved um, World War Hulk. Actually, seemed to have had a lot of people say like this is an event that I can get behind Mm -hmm. and admittedly John Romita Jr.'s art on it I never got past the first issue like and only because I was super cheap on digital Um, so I I can't really speak to World War Hulk Civil War I thought was unbelievably wrong headed but I but it was wrong headed I can at least understand why it was super successful yeah it was really well done even if you don't like it Civil War is this weirdly perfectly executed piece of shit if that makes sense uh, you would you know like, I, I think that i think that it's really good for what it is it's just that i so don't like what it is well i don't like what it is and there's part of me that sort of um miller had a comfort with having his characters act out of com- out of character that i was intensely uncomfortable with there and i feel unfortunately like that somehow seems to be the thing that everyone took rolling forward was kind of this idea of like, well, if I if I take it, if I tell if the story is big enough, I can basically be justified in making the characters do what whatever I say they're going to. And and that is unfortunate. That is that is the only part that would keep me from totally agreeing with you, because I think it is I think it is a well executed piece of shit with the asterisk of what I consider out of character characters. Sure, but I, th- I think that's true me. in every single Marvel event since Civil War. Uh, well, yeah, every and that's what I'm saying. War. Since Civil War, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, whereas and, beforehand, yeah, the people made an effort case. just to keep in character. I mean, Thor's yeah. characterization in Fear itself mm-hmm. is laughable. Yeah, but. 
it's kind of like I, I'm feeling about Avengers vs. X-Men, which is you almost have to just go into it going, none of these characters are really going to act like I expect them to act. Mm-hmm. And if I let go of that, do I still have fun reading the story? Oh, what, what What's really weird is... Um, Avengers versus X-Men X or AVX versus or whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Which Hib said a hilarious thing about the logos on that. I don't know if you noticed the same thing that he did. That's like G.I. Joe? No, that if you look at the issues versus Avengers versus X-Men, their, their logos are literally giant A versus X, right? Mm-hmm. But it's Avengers versus X-Men. Whereas AVX versus the logos, because the names are spelled out, actually looks like Avengers versus X-Men. <laughs> so Avengers versus X-Men is, has a logo of AVX, and the, the logo AVX. of AVX is Avengers versus X-Men. So he was like, what the fuck are you guys trying to do here? You know, Confusion is exactly what they're going for, Jeff. But he, yeah, I think so. But here's the thing. So there's two stories in that first issue, and there's um, Iron Man Magneto, which is by Jason Aaron and the Cubert, and I can never remember which Cubert's a Marvel, which Cubert's a DC. Um, and that is literally a continuation of Jason Aaron's You've Never Met Tony Stark. I mean, he right. says that again in the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I kind of wish that they had actually said in that issue of Avengers vs. X-Men. Continued. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. Because um, it is a continuation of that scene. And that's, that's exactly what you'd expect. However, the Imminence um, Thor ver- uh, Thing versus Namor. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I would read years of that comic. <laughs> Not only because the two characters act in character. Oh, that's wonderful, right? But there's like AVX fun fact: thought like Thing is punching with the weight of seven cars, like all the way through the story, and it's just dumb. It's like embracing the stupid. Right, but in that way that Catherine Eminen does, that's really fucking clever. Yes, right? yes, so, and, and yeah. so that it's just it's glorious, and of course yeah. it's sure Eminen, which means it looks good. And unlike his Fear itself stuff, the storytelling's really good in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say that Submariner is is a fascinating character these days in the way that because he get, he's gotten so much play after being such a forgotten character for so long like you know him becoming this important part of the X-Men universe which just always seemed dumb to me I think flip between flipping through like an issue of new defenders before I fully stopped buying or looking at Marvel stuff and also looking at some of the stuff in AVX Avengers vs. X-Men 2 I was kind of like I, I think I kind of like super bitchy Namer, I it, sort it's of. It's a shame. Like it. It's a shame that you're you've entirely given up on Marvel because Kieran Gillen's Namer is not the Namer that you grew up with, but mm-hmm. is spectacular as a character. Mm-hmm. He's just mm-hmm. really, he's just really funny. Mm-hmm. He's this weirdly like queeny. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that weird, dry, aristocratic bitchiness. Um, that they're bringing into that character. He's the Dowager Countess from Downton Abbey. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. With superpowers. Yeah. And that's exactly what you want to read. Exactly. Yeah. No, that, exactly. That's very mm-hmm. fun. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gillen has done a lot of good with that character. And other writers don't 
get it in the same way. Right. I think they do a, a less charming bitchiness. Well, because I, I think the Gillen's bitchiness or Gillen's namers bitchiness, I should say, is um, is really weirdly charming. I, I think as we've learned post, you know, Emma Frost, post Morrison, bitchiness is charming. Bitchiness is really, really hard to do. Yes, you know? and slips all too easily into just being a bitch. Yeah, just just being bitchy or just being um, yeah, kind of petty and kind of ugly in a way. So there's there's such a thin line on it that I think so few people can get. So. Uh, yes. How long before all Marvel comics either have Avengers or X Men in the title? <laughs> uh, it's obviously never going to happen, but I think we're going to see more of it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I I think there are there are families that that will still always exist. Um, it's just a shame because, of course, for me, uh, you can insert my old man rant of again. What I loved about characters in the Marvel Universe were that there were, when they expanded in the 70s and expanded so dramatically because they were finally freed from the shackles of uh, the publishing limitations that they had had under their agreement with National, um, they just expanded in all directions super fast in a way that um, even now, if like three years from now, it's, you know... X-Men, Kill Raven, Warrior of Worlds just wouldn't feel the same. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Even, even it's, it's if the, it I is Avengers. Say, comics have to count and yeah. in order to count, they have to be connected to a, a recognizable franchise. Yeah, and that that is that's that is very much what, what the publishing and editorial insist that the marketplace is telling them. I do not think the marketplace is telling them in the numbers that they believe that to be. You know? Well, it becomes I mean, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It does. I mean, and and when you look at something like, uh, you know, just the success of Iron Fist from such a brief period ago, I think totally belies that and turn it, turns that on its head, you know? It's 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 like if you've if you've got, you know, Fraction Brubaker and David Aja doing a book and it's what I think is a, a really solid character you know, you can have a book that does defy expectations and do well in the marketplace, and it doesn't have anything to do with whether it matters. Well, you know, like I mean, you, nothing- could, you could even look at that now, Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, for a ton of people, that's kind of the book that matters precisely because of who's on it and where it's going, and not the idea that it's tied into. Avengers, or you know, even to me, the the you know its own little mini events. You know, I think it's had it had more of them than to my taste. Anyway, <laughs> not that that isn't literally moot by now. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Group also asks: Any chance of revisiting the conversation about Saga, the direct market's Mark Wade, given that Jeff would have had a chance to read the articles in question? I, I, I kind of hope you say no because I don't remember the conversation. Um, you, you know, uh, I, I, I can post some addendums, Eric. Uh, one thing is, is that, um, and I, I'm in no way, uh, blaming Graham for this, except that I stealthily am. Uh, one of the factors where I challenged a lot of the numbers that, um, Mark Wade was throwing out in his print math is, for example, when he talked about losing money on, on your floppies. Um, that's with a print run of 5,000 books. 
So at the time, I thought that we were talking about higher numbers, which I don't necessarily know, um, which changes that landscape a lot, you know. But at the time, what I was definitely reacting to was I, I thought a a misrepresentation of the, the way of the marketplace. Um, and it's totally not Graham's fault. He, for all I know, he probably did actually mention that number and I didn't hear it and went off on a huge rant. I probably didn't. Let's be fair. Yeah. Um, Stevenson's thing, again, uh, I you know, it's a damn shame because I read it and I talked about talked to Hibbs about it and I thought that there was there was a point that again I had that Stevenson made um that he that he overlooked uh, that I had overlooked that I think is important that Hibbs underlined I still essentially am going to say that there's n- never going to be especially for a publisher like Image there's never going to be as much risk um, as there is for a retailer buying on a non-returnable basis. I just, I, 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 it's like if he's going to, if he's, if he's going to take retailers to task for not ordering enough, even when being warned, and then later being frustrated that so many orders come in and that they have to go back to press and there's a lag. Believe me, I totally understand that. But I also feel there are ways around that, some of which include potential limited returnability, which DC has been looking into. DC, when they launched the 52, they they did both limited returnability and they did crazy overprints. And I know that they don't, Image doesn't have anything like that number. Oh, actually, I think Hibbs's point that he mentioned that was something that I entirely overlooked is that in many cases, it's the creators that, that sort of have the final say so on on what the print overrun is going to be. So for all we know, like it could be one of those situations where image advises people of what their print runs should be. I mean, you know, if there's going to be a print run larger than the orders, but clearly, you know, when you get to that arrangement, you're sort of taking money out of Brian Vaughn's pocket if he's going to say like, okay, well, let's take the risk and overprint you know, by X, even though we're, our orders, you know, the, the orders aren't there, like, I have confidence that you're going to get X. Like, Vaughn had already, inv- by just by the fact that we had so many pages available in that first issue by 299, you certainly can't say that, that Vaughn wasn't putting his, putting his money where his mouth was um, for that book. Uh, so that is actually a good thing to point out, is that Image, unlike the other companies, the creator has a huge say in in the the actual print run where image can try and provide some advice but in situations like that that becomes a lot more crucial to each book may have very different independent scales of budget um that and that's really worth considering as opposed to something like marvel and dc that being said image has incredible perks and opportunities as a front of the book um preferred partner through previews and I feel sometimes that Stevenson plays that down a lot. And again, as other people have pointed out, there is a, um, you know, when people jump up and down and celebrate image as the true creator's choice, we have to deal with the fact that there is a lot of work for hire that image was built on and under um, 
that makes it a much more uh, stickier and complex issue than just the cut and dry. Hey, image, they're the good guys. Would 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 make the case for. Even though I really want to pick up on that, I'm going to move forward to the next question. Oh, uh, really? You should pick up on it, dude. This is the. This oh, my, is the no, deal. no, my, we've got okay. seventy. What, what I want to pick up on this: so. Are you saying yes. that work for hire is inherently evil? I am not saying that work for hire is inherently evil. What I'm saying <laughs> is, I'm just that saying it's, it's mostly evil. <laughs> I, I guess what I'm saying is is that you there is a difference between saying that you are um, a creator-owned company that champions creators' rights and a creator-owned company that champions the rights of certain creators. Well, I think that Image has always been very um, cagey about this. I mean, do you not remember they as were well? They should one, be. Yeah. One of the ways they were talking about themselves being the friends of the creator and the creator-owned company was to talk about Brandon Graham doing profit, mm-hmm. which is a work for hire gig. Which is a work for hire gig. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, you have you have them really muddying the waters with that, and it's a shame yeah, then- because Image does a lot of really great creator-owned work, and by that I mean not only the books themselves, mm-hmm. but work in making creator-owned books successful as a concept and moving creator-owned as a concept forward in in, in the mainstream reader's mind. They, they wax and wane on that, but I, I think I would largely agree. I would say that Brandon Graham is a perfect example of image at, at its at its quote-unquote best and also at its um, worst. Yeah, it's most complex. On the one hand, it seems highly unlikely that we would have King City available on the stands and digitally the entire work as Graham wanted it if Stevenson and Image had not made huge, strong, decisive steps to to rescue it from Tokyo Pop. And that is absolutely 100% Image at its best. The fact that Brandon is doing Profit Comics uh, as a work for hire without a contract... Um, is the sort of thing that gives me pause, both about image and both, uh, in a way, almost about Brandon. You know, because on the one hand, I know that he's kind of, when asked about it, he's kind of like, yeah, I don't necessarily trust contracts, so I'm just doing this without, and I'm getting paid a good wage, and I'm aware that the stuff that I'm doing is not mine. And it would be lovely to say that, okay, there's no way that's not going to bite anyone in the ass, and 90 to 95% of the time, it will not bite anyone on the ass. Unfortunately, so much of what's important is about that 5% of the time. You know, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. No, I, I don't. I, I think work for hire has many awesome things going for it. It really does. Unf- so I just think that um, I think that image tends to push itself. It's kind of like the Democratic Party. It tends to push <laughs> itself way more to the left than I feel that it actually is. And that gives me some pause. Not just because I'm a pinko, but I believe that that, it, that ends up leading to a lot of agitation when they um, actually end up far more in the center yeah. than they've ever given noises that they would. Yeah. So. 
Okay, moving through these questions, because Eric has a lot of questions, and I think we might only get you to know, the end of his questions. This is the thing. We really have to be better about telling people, like, a three-question limit, I think. And not oh, that I don't oh, mind oh. Eric, because – but I remember this last time where somebody – we gave 27 questions <laughs> – from you know that we answered in detail, and some guy who answered asked only one. I think we we had a three word answer for you know. But we're going to of... speed through these ones, Jeff. Okay, speed sure through them. Where we are. Okay, you ready? Y- yes. No, wait. Is that was my answer to the question? Yes. Is the best way to solve the before Watchmen controversy a no holds barred cage match between Moore on one side and Lean to die on the other? Hey, I was right. Um, Just yes. So. Okay. And if so, who do you think would win? Mm. Mm. It's a good question. You know, I'm going to say Tadio. I think Tadio is weirdly, unnecessarily brutal um, firing of Chris Robertson. <laughs> has no fucking. Like, he, he has no problem. I, but, you know. See, this is it. Yeah, I think that that it. Yeah, yes. I'm sorry. What's that? You have to repeat that. I said he has no problem exercising his dick muscles, and by that, (laughs) dick. I mean his dickish muscles. Yes, I got you. Thank you. Actually, the thing that's great about Didio is he doesn't he kind of remind you of the one of the wrestlers in the movie the Barton Fink is writing? Like, I just realized that now. Like, that guy who's like, I will destroy you! Like, did, did as you, I recall, that guy kind of looks like Dan Didio. Did, did you see his response to the, the question about Chris Roberson being fired at the LA Times thing? Yes, I did. Where he was like, he said he didn't want to work for us. We just helped him out with that. I was, yeah. I was really genuinely kind of like, that is simultaneously funny and an odious response. Yeah, it was funny and it was odious. Also, based on what Jim Lee said, I was like, um, I would have to say, I would have to say that although I appreciate the fact that they are now looking for it, the source of DC's poor morale is not what Chris Robertson's saying on Twitter. You know? Oh God! Like, yes. Call me crazy, but seriously, if you guys are concerned about low morale at DC. There's a list that a lot of people can provide for you, and I, I guarantee that that guy making noise is not one of them. That being said, I would pick Lee in the cage match because have you ever noticed this is one of those things? I think generally artists uh, are in better health and shape than writers in the comics. Oh no, not sure, but I just think the deal would be born brutal. I think Jim Lee would, you know, he'd he'd almost kill you and then he'd have that moment of thinking oh maybe and that's when Didio would just be like I I have now gouged out your eyes I will destroy him and while, yeah, while exactly. you're screaming that's when I will pull out your tongue and he would just go for the kill see I think he would be a mad dog I think Alan Moore with his passive aggressiveness will out mad dog him choke Didio on his, with his own with Moore's beard like he will actually beard choke him like just jam his beard down Didio's mouth like some admittedly beard. he'll be blind by that point but then Lee's going to come in and deliver the, the backstabbing finishing blow and then Lee would say if, Alan if only you'd come and talk to me if only you'd reached out we yes. avoided all this bloodshed and then absolutely. kill him absolutely yeah Yep. Actually, I love the idea that maybe it's a standstill, and then Paul Levitz rushes in with a chair and hits both of them on the back of the head <laughs> and takes them both out. Why do you think Jeff Johns has seemingly been uninvolved with Before Watchmen on both a creative and promotional level? Because Jeff Johns realized what a f- clusterfuck that whole thing was. Yeah. 
I would say there's a yeah, he clearly knew that was a bad idea. Yeah, I I also think that um you know the, I don't think I don't think that the the publishing guys of uh, of DC are a three-headed beast. You know what I mean? Like and certainly Jeff Johns is a busy motherfucker. Um, oh and also Jeff Johns has always made a big point of saying that he's not the chief creative officer of the comics. Oh yes. Whenever yeah. someone brings it up, he's always been like, "That's not me." Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think yeah. I think he just knows it's a bad idea and he's staying away. Could be that, and it could also be that it's not his. It's it's not his horse, so he doesn't have to do it. Now, I mean, if it was before Watchmen, the TV show, I think he would probably have to step forward because that's where that he's at. Job, yeah. Yeah. Is creator versus corporate owned? Sorry, creator owned versus corporate owned. The new Marvel versus DC. No. <sighs> I yeah I um I guess I, I guess I agree with you I I don't know I I you know what I honestly think that there's a paradigm shift uh I'm not sure that it's going to happen but it feels on the threshold of happening oh no I Between, com- I completely agree but I think Marvel yeah. and DC was always like a false arms race do you know what I mean like it was because yes. ultimately they're the same company and it doesn't really matter. Do you know what I mean? You have people who support... It's like sports teams, whereas creator-owned versus corporate-owned does matter in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, like, but I think ultimately the, the big thing is the difference between Marvel and DC is while you can sort of... It's a false arms race and you can sort of jump back and forth. Um, I think that a big crucial part about creator-owned versus corporate-owned is there are people who... It doesn't matter how much they want to support creator owned. It doesn't matter if the books aren't good, and sort of vice versa with corporate owned. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I, I really like Chris Robertson's work, and I will be keeping an eye out. But Memorial doesn't exactly turn my crank yet. I know he'll have something at some point that will. I look forward to reading it. Um, you know, and similarly by the same, you know, one of the biggest. Uh, proponents these days for creator-owned comics. Steve Niles is a guy that I would actively cross the street to avoid reading one of his comics at this point. So, you know. I'm now imagining a world where there's a Steve, like a 30 Days of Night on the, the ground in front of you and you run across the street. <laughs> it would happen. Given the way the drag market is set up and works, including the retailers and readership, is it actually possible for companies like Image, Dark Horse, and others to gain market share from Marvel and DC over the recent controversies, or is that just the pipe dream of crazy idealists and scornful haters? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Is Creator Owned Heroes the worst name for a comic book ever? Creator-owned heroes? Is yeah, that an actual that, that, name for a book? That's an actual name for a book. It's an image book. Yeah, that sounds terrible. Uh, if not, what to... published comic does have the worst name? I, creator-owned heroes might actually be close. Creator-owned heroes is awful, but I'm sure if I had researched this in advance, there would be like a pretty awful title. Giant size man thing. That's an awesome. Can I just say, Marvel's putting out a man, man, a man thing omnibus, and they didn't call it giant size man thing. That's that's upsetting to me. They they should have called it giantist. And it's like, it's like thing. over a thousand pages. Oh my god! Fuck those guys! Fuck those guys! Somebody asked me something. Somebody was saying something like, uh, "Like is is Marvel like driving you? You know, driving you crazy by releasing?" And it was some shitty book. And I'm like, because I'm not buying them. If Marvel really wants to drive me crazy, what they need to do is like release Gerber's Defenders on digital, for example, and like something like the Man Thing Omnibus would 
fucking yeah. Yeah, I, don't don't look at the solicit then. You'll that get hurts. upset. You will get yeah, upset. Yeah, those fuckers. Yeah. Um, it's painful. Given the given that the given that one of the current pushes for creator owned work is that it is less ethically dubious than corporate owned work when it comes to things like ownership and compensation, do you think there will be any discussion from creator owned advocates that it is just as easy for creators to be screwed over by fellow creators as it is by corporations in the light of things like the Gaiman, McFarlane and Moore Kirkman suits? Uh, I don't think there will be that much discussion, but there should be. Yeah, there should be. I mean, there absolutely should be because because these things are going to happen. And frankly, uh, as I think somebody pointed out when talking about the whole Kirkman Moore problem, uh, Hollywood forces bottlenecks these things so that there has to be the 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 situations for screwings become way way too all too easy. You know, the whole the whole like Hollywood's not going to play ball with you unless you have a single person in control of the rights. It sounds like was part of the problem that necessitated the the Tony Moore payout for The Walking Dead. Now, that being said, uh, if if Moore is completely right and he uh, Kirkman has refused to provide any sort of books for the auditing that that is um, Moore's. Uh, under Moore's right under the contract, then that's a completely different set of screwings. That being said, Moore has, uh, although he may not have the money, he's got far better legal ground to go at Kirkman. Uh, and also Gaiman was able to go at, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Gaiman was able to go at McFarlane than under a work-for-hire contract. You know, those guys, they may not have necessarily wanted to spend the money but they actually had the grounds for a case and continued to fight and at least in the case of Gaiman was able to win you know it took him 10 odd years but well because both of neither of them would back down like yeah and, and also many oh, others also said there. because both of them could afford to fight that long mm-hmm. that's the other thing yeah absolutely so which which does also say something pretty amazing and if you think about it those <laughs> Yeah, you do. They were able to have that fight for 10 years in part because neither of them had done work for higher com- comics for the majority of their careers. So, well, Okay, I'm now switching to Twitter because the Twitter com- <sighs> questions are going to go faster than the ones in the comment section. Yes. God uh, bless you, Eric Roop. You're a great person. So. Lord Corn Syrup. What are your thoughts on Gerber's food- Fool Killer Mini from the 90s? Read it recently. Really unnerving. I've not read it. I haven't read it either. I at the time I remember picking it up when Gerber was still around, and by picking it up, I mean literally picking it up on the shelves and putting it back down. I found the Fool Killer disturbing back when he first appeared. I found it even more disturbing, and I should revisit it. As I recall, I, it just struck me as a literally ugly book. Yeah, I, I remember reading comments along the lines of, "This is one completely fucked up comic," which yeah. simultaneously makes me want to read it and never want to read it. Yeah, over time, I would have to say I've got a lot more patience and interest in um, in fucked up comics. You know, like I definitely the when when Fool Killer was coming out on the stands, I had not made myself sit through you know Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, whereas now I've seen something like that four or five times. So part of me is like, yeah, bring on ugly. I think I've got a much higher tolerance for it. That being said, um, I would have to hunt it down in quarter boxes or something. Sorry. David Brothers says, what's up with that David Brothers guy? Why is he so mad all the time? Yeah, what is with him? You know, that guy. 
<laughs> that guy. He then asks, really, uh, what are the best books or movies you've enjoyed in recent memory that way outpaced your expectations? Um, I don't know if it way outpaced my expectations, but I finally saw Submarine the other week, and I fucking loved Submarine. Oh, really? Interesting. I huh? loved, loved, loved it. Can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. I thought it was everything I could have wanted from a movie. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I will I will count well, and I should ask um sort of like what or like how? Like if you don't mind me jumping um, beyond the blurb, like like in a just even in a the it, simplest it, it, if you it, it like really, blank, you'll it really love emotionally connected with me. Um there were parts of it that I could honestly track onto my own experience both at that age and at later ages the mistakes that the main character makes with his girlfriend or mistakes that I made with my girlfriend like 10 years later um, wow. I think it's a beautifully shot film I think it's a really funny film I think it's also a really sad film uh, it says a lot to me about that the desire to fix things is not enough mm-hmm. that the goodwill and good intention is not enough to really make a change Hmm. Um, that I, I I really appreciated. Um, you know, between that and Four Lions and, oh, I don't know, Bridesmaids and something else, maybe the few episodes of Whites, I've concluded that I like everyone and everything associated with the IT crowd except the IT crowd. <laughs> I really like the IT crowd, that's what we said. Oh, uh, do you? Okay. Yeah, I think the IT crowd is really funny. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I really really liked it. I thought it was a, a really wonderfully sensitive funny film. Interesting. Interesting. You know, a movie that's exactly like that is uh, uh, Elite Squad, which is the movie from 2007, I want to say, that was released in Brazil. Um, and by I say everything like what you just said, I mean <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah. nothing. I, I yeah, by, because... by the time you said Elite Squad, I was like, I'm waiting for the part where he's like, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not at all. It is. It, but Elite Squad is fucking awesome. If uh, if you, I don't think it's it's not your cup of tea, Graham. I would actually say that it is something like the anti-gram cup of tea but like for people as I think I described it on Twitter as like if you ever wanted to see like Don Siegel like directing an episode of The Wire after you know coming back from the dead and doing a ton of meth and watching uh, Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket Elite Squad is fucking phenomenal. It is. It's a story about, you know essentially the, the, the top Elite Squad um drug task fighting force that fights the the drug dealers in the barrios of Rio de Janeiro fucking amazing it's it it looks gorgeous it's kind of all over the place storytelling wise the the format of it but it it what i love about it is and the reason why i compare it to to don siegel's work is it even though it is a, arguably a very modern movie uh, it has um it has a tremendous ambivalence about the need for law and what that does to the people involved in it. That, Like, seriously, like, the reason why I made the comparison to Siegel, and I haven't seen a ton of his work, is it reminded me of not so nothing so much as Dirty Harry, weirdly, mm-hmm. in that it has both a 
conservative point of view and an extreme ambivalence and knowledge of the cost of it of that conservatism so i found it a phenomenal piece of work it's shot amazingly well it looks i mean it looks phenomenal the action scenes are great it's completely disturbing and utterly satisfying I, I, I adored it. I was actually very pleased by Cabin in the Woods, which I think I mentioned on a previous podcast. That is, yes, I, which I, I, I really want to see. Yeah, Sean, Sean Witzke would absolutely 100% disagree, but I, I thought that that was an incredibly good, chewy um, view, uh, movie to think about even days afterwards. And The Raid Redemption, which is still in a lot of theaters, is a phenomenal fucking action movie. If you like action films definitely please see it. I know there's a lot of uh, old school Hong Kong film buffs like me who have had to satisfy it, satisfy themselves with the sort of both more brutal but somehow more formulaic um, Thai martial arts movies uh, and I think that, I think that uh, The Raid Redemption is an absolutely satisfying hybrid of the two. It's great. It's, it's like Assault uh, on Precinct 13 uh, with with stabby knife foo. It's great. <laughs> uh, do you have any books that outpaced your expectations recently? Um, you know, the first Hunger Games was better than I thought it would be. Way, way more so. And I remember talking about it, you know, a couple of podcasts. Yeah, you, you compared I, it to Kirby, which made me want to read it, like, for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I have to say, then I read the second book, which honestly didn't really do a lot for me. I can see what she was trying to do. She's crazily ambitious. And uh, I had lunch with Lauren Davis the other day where we spent a lot of time talking about this. Mockingjay, which is the third book, which I am I am finding my uh, – I'm like maybe about 20 pages away from the end, is – crazily ambitious and initially I found it sort of disappointing um, but I there's the the text and meta text in Mockingjay is absolutely fucking phenomenal and towards the end there are some action scenes that are just absolute brutality war scenes that again I swear to God, remind me of nothing so much as Kirby. Like, Jack Kirby's presence comes right back into the, the final third of Mockingjay in a way that I found find amazing. I'm I, just going to have to read these at some point. Yeah, I think so. I think you'll love number one. Maybe you'll not be so down with number two. Actually, because I've oversold it and you're one of those tailor your expectations accordingly sort of people you'll probably like number one who knows how you feel about number two but i think you'll be really fascinated by the places that go in in volume three where i'm really shocked by the things that are being discussed and considered uh, at first i was very much like the like the second and third books of the hunger games i was like ah oh, fuck this is going to be like the matrix uh, reloaded and the matrix revolutions all over again and it goes in very different places and, and in much more satisfying and nuanced places. Um, for a popular novel and especially a popular young adult novel kind of knocked me out. So, Also, Colson Whitehead's Zone 1, which I, I read a few months back. I, um, I really enjoyed that. Like, it's a zombie novel that is very much a meditation about as zombie no- zombie pieces of literature should be about modern living that I quite enjoyed and was kind of a, a really fascinating counterpoint to a super sad true love story so yeah, good I, that is on my library list that is on my list oh, of things, things to read um, 
Now, the I'm trying to look it up on a real Twitter and not on Twitter client, so I can actually get the real name of the person who asked this question. Oh, okay. Ahmed Boyan, B H U I. Y-A-N I've completely slaughtered your name I'm really sorry asks um, just want to know why at one point comics were allowed to be so off schedule in publishing huh wow that didn't pop up in my thing what yeah hmm. I mean now they're doing better but it is mind-boggling some of the delays that occurred I mm-hmm. think it's because at some point um, faith that the audience were there for the creator and not for the story or the characters yes was far stronger than yeah. it was before and than it is now yeah yeah I agree there there was a point where and this is really I just did, Marvel let's face it yeah 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 I mean DC had its various like jumps and problems I mean in the in the you know all-star Batman kind of way but I think honestly the the point where this became huge was with uh, Kevin Smith's run on Daredevil and Miller and Hitch's run on the original Ultimates. Yes. Where the delays did not hurt the book, but in all cases, as far as I knew, as far as I could tell, actually seemed to help it. Um, but what's interesting is then you get to Civil War. Mm-hmm. Where the, I mean, that was delayed for, what, two, three months in the middle? Yeah. Uh, and that's that just seems crazy in a way that Daredevil and Ultimates didn't because they didn't really affect anything else and all of a sudden right. Civil War fucked up the entire Marvel line for two months yeah exactly and and that so I would say that's the other factor I mean is, is that when you had Marvel when Marvel had its free floating universe and, and were not doing line wide events it was easier to have situations like that and I think in a way um in a way that potentially could have been quite good, you know, in in a way, especially when it ended up producing good work. But you know, I think that uh, once that, yeah, it was a combination of once you didn't see that happen, once you saw diminishing sales, like once people were like, "Well, this this pooch is screwed up, and and there's no way it can be fixed," um, and also the fact that it became tied to suddenly you were like you were having to publish comics out of sequence in order to get things out, you know, like Captain America being back before the end of Captain America Reborn, for example, mm-hmm. which I, you know, you, they were just, that, that was no longer quite tenable. So he also asks, what is your favorite comic book metropolis? Oh, wow. What a great question. Uh, and I have a good answer for this. He suggests so. Gotham city, Marvel, New York. Um, mm. I, I'm really tempted to say my favorite one is Metropolis. Really? There's something about Metropolis as a concept I really like. Hmm. Well, uh, for me, um, Marvel New as a Marvel reader in the 70s, New York City was an amazing place, you know, and, and it absolutely hands down. Like when I went and stayed there for a month, uh, two years back. Uh, I was astonished by stuff that I saw, even though I'd been to New York just a few times previous, nothing very extensive. Things that I saw that I realized, in part because I was rereading Marvel comics from the 70s at the time, stuff that was actually in there. And I was like, oh my God, my concept of, um, and this is something that goes back to something that I may have written way, way back around the time of Astro City. The the concept of, of the superhero, especially for me, superheroes as tied by Stan Lee, is 
uh, Stanley and Kirby, let me be super clear on that, is a the superhero is tied to is an urban is an urban myth in that it is a, it is a myth about city living you know mm-hmm. it is this thing like growing up out in the country it wasn't just the idea that you know <coughs> cities have superheroes in them but the idea of um that myth of when you have all those people talking like oh hey look up in the sky it's thor oh isn't he dreamy like there is a a, a there's an urban fantasy that's right there that is so potent and so powerful um, that, yeah, it's pretty hard to untie the idea of the superhero from the city. So it, it's, it's You just made me remember. I remember when I was in New York for the first time, which was, God, 90... Shit, 96, 97? Wow. So, you know, you know, you're talking about me being 22. Yeah. Um... And I saw water towers for the first time in real life. Yes, right. And, and I, I just had this weird disconnect of I've seen these in comics for decades. Yeah. And I've yeah. never seen one in real life before. And I yeah. kind of don't believe it's real. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, loving Marvel Comics in the 70s meant that I adored the New York skyline. Like, um,. In that weird, like fairy tale coming true kind of way, um, yeah. So I to- I totally get that. The water towers, absolutely fucking phenomenal and amazing. Um, yeah. So that I mean, all that being said, uh, I I never had much of a sense of Gotham as an actual city outside of Batman. In fact, I think that Gotham is at its most interesting when it's a creation of Batman rather than I suppose vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Spider-Man New York another thing that the two other cities that I adore crazily and their sister cities um I should mention that Comicsology just put up the uh through um Devil's Due Press the first two issues of Matt Howarth's Savage Henry uh comic book are available for 99 cents a pop and uh Howarth's Savage Henry and those annoying Post Brothers whole series of crazy indie black and white comics done from the very early to very mid 80s and in fact he's continued his career completely sub rosa uh, all on its own but but the Bugtown, the sort of city that is a crazy shifting reality that exists in sort of all realities at once and is an organic unkillable invincible thing is very much the precursor to Brandon Graham's King City Mm -hmm. it's this a, a, a thoroughly science fiction concept where people basically spend most of their time hanging out and eating noodles I guess is something that I really adore about both of those places and, and put them like right near the top for me of fictional cities like my fictional city list is pretty much New York Bugtown King City I think <laughs> the end the uh, end yeah Adam Nave says what were the best bands of the 80s on both sides of the pond oh shit I am totally biased, but I'm going to say REM for the US. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I, I don't know. I, you know, I had every. I'm going to say for me, uh, I would. And fortunately, I feel that their current influence on bands today will sort of hold me out. But I would say that Talking Heads, uh, as an American band, even though they started in the 70s, but they ran through the 80s. Um, I love REM in a way that. 
I loved them and then burnt out on them, I suppose, like so heavily. And I mean, for me, my own personal biases being what they are for Brit bands from the 80s, it's uh, New Order heavily. I was such a huge New Order fan. To a lesser extent, guys, well, and Joy Division, uh, The Smiths, and... um, Bauhaus, like kind of all the big usual suspects. I'm sure if I sat down and dug around in in my collection, huge fan of like individual artists like Brian Eno, of course, is kind of seminal. It's kind of I I think what's weird to me is because he worked with everybody and in ways so successfully, it's kind of weirdly impossible to imagine music in the second half of the 20th century without Eno. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of mind-boggling. See, I was going to do the joke that it was all Tin Machine, or that we're the most important agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should like go the opposite, or um, Power Station. Kajagoogoo. Yeah, yeah, oh, Kajagoogoo. Well, actually, yeah, you know, um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, could, I can tell you my favorite, not the best, but my favorite musical act of the UK in the 80s was Billy Bragg. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, and cause yeah, he workers, did some workers' playtime is to well, see, see, still so like one of the greatest. In the 80s. Yeah, Billy Bra- I mean, you know, the Clash. I mean, that there's there's a band that's pretty heavily. You know, it's hard to imagine the 80s without them. And Jesus, you know, their influence was kind of big. I know, of course, they're one of those bands that is completely kind of played out. Tom Waits, you know, when he makes his transition to in the 80s, but. But we're not talking about solo artists. We're kind of talking about acts. And I, at that point, I'm like, uh... But yeah, Billy Bragg, Tom Waits. Like, we could actually make a hugely extensive and embarrassing list. I wish I paid close enough attention to my music from the time so that I could be, like, all like, oh, and come up with someone that was, like... Really obscure brilliant. but awesome? Yeah, but but awesome, yeah. And I'm just not going to be able to do that. Um, Adam also asks, what's your favorite DC crossover and why? I th- I'm pretty sure I've said my answer many times in this podcast which is what millennium oh right 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 sorry for whatever reason I wasn't thinking crossover like event I was thinking like you know when so and so meant blabby blank I don't know man uh favorite DC uh I'm gonna I'm gonna take a pass because I'll, I'll come up with something later that will make me seem like super awesome but but for right now I'm like I, I literally can't think of anything Silent Brown says, looks like the Bakuman anime is out in DVD in the US. Seen it yet? Nope. I haven't. And I have to say, um, the things that I've adored most is uh, manga, especially after uh, Beck, Mongolian Chop Squad, which I know there are some people who adore that anime, um, have pretty much kept me away from anime adoptions, uh, adaptations. I, it'd be really hard for me to... to work on that like for me the only character that sort of is like I will read 900 volumes of the manga and watch 900 uh, episodes of the anime at the same time and for the rest of my life is Go Go 13 everything else starts to seem a little too much like by the time I see the anime the characters the voices that I have in their head are so distinct and so different that it just seems weird watching them uh, be animated um, Alex Bernstein says, what's the comic to look forward to in 2012? <sighs> Shit, that's a stumper. It's hard because I really don't spend a lot of time like looking forward 
You know what I mean? Like, there's got to be some awesome stuff. I just, I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, American Barbarian just came out, and it's awesome, and you don't even have to wait for it. Um, I don't know. What do you say, Graham? You must know some I am stuff, right? really looking forward to Isla Prima. What is that? Uh, like it's it Kevin Huzanka's fictionalized version of American Impressionists in Italy with Glenn Ganges essentially Mary sued into the story. That sounds fantastic. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Yeah, Kevin, anything out, out from Kevin Huizenga is like... Glo- Gloriana is getting a re-release as well, and I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, yeah, that, sh- that would be interesting. Um, yeah. Because no. I think it's it's been extended, and I think it's got a new extended oh, edition really? of Gloriana, so I'm really curious about that. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, there's got to be. There's there really is brilliant stuff, and it's it's like maybe maybe we can revisit this next week, and I'll go make it a point to visit Spurgeon's Comics Reporter, where he like showcases actually mentions stuff. Out. That, yeah, yeah, uh, that's coming out. That uh, helps. Dallas Bechdel's just come out, hasn't it? Yes, it is. I have it. Haven't read it because, of course, I I laid into American Barbarian, but um, but yeah, Are You My Mother is actually sitting right here, right next to it. In fact, so. Uh, let's um, see. Alison Candy asks, your favorite creators of the 1970s are in the Hunger Games. This <laughs> <laughs> is so close to the cage match question. Yes. Um, let's see. Engelhart is going to die really quickly. Oh, you know, I think... Okay, so here's the thing. My problem is, because this is one of those questions that I read and stuck, and I spent a lot of time thinking. Sadly, <laughs> here's, go then, I'm not. Go, he, Jeff. Go. here's my problem is for me, and this may not interest Allison at all, because I feel like she's more of a DC person, but for me, having spent a lot of time on this question, thinking about it from the conception of the Marvel comics of the 1970s, um, you have to think that the Avengers title is the equivalent of the Cornico. No, I'm sorry. The editor in chief position at Marvel Comics is the equivalent of controlling the Cornucopia. Do you, do you know what that is, basically, oh. Graham? Okay, yeah. so in the Hunger Games, like when the game starts, there is a cornucopia. It's like literally the Horn of Plenty. But what's the, what shoots out of it at the beginning of the match are all these weapons and food and bags and supplies, and everybody has to race and get to it. If you try and control the cornucopia, if you spend too long there, you're almost certainly going to get killed because everyone descends on it like a free-for-all. So the, the best strategy is try and get in close enough to grab something, anything, and then get out of there fast and get away out into the woods and away from the cornucopia. So it seems like controlling the editor-in-chiefship of Marvel is the way to actually win the game as if it's the cornucopia because you have control of everything. But in fact, what ends up happening is you end up getting shanked and quitting or leaving almost immediately thereafter. So... I would say that Jerry Conway moves in, establishes control of the cornucopia at a crucial time, and is able to kill off a bunch of competitors. You know, um, he basically takes uh, Englehart away from the Avengers, which like kills him. Uh, he's able to. Um, God, what was the other books that he basically threw people off and did whatever the fuck he wanted to? And ultimately, the only person who ends up making this work is Jim Shooter, who uh, is who no one really thought was going to be a competitor in the Marvel Hunger Games at all, but ends up killing off Doug Munnick, ends up taking out Doug McGregor, ends up uh, alienating... Um, uh, who is it? It wasn't Englehart. Steve Gerber... 
um, you know, taking out a number of people that you would have thought would have been incredibly viable. Like, weirdly, there's that whole section of unique, individual, independent guys that all seem really quirky and would have good odds. Englehart, Starlin, um, uh, uh, Don McGregor, especially. Like, I would have, like, if I had been watching The Hunger Games back in 1970-something, I would have put all my money on Don McGregor. And that guy, of course, later history has taught us, is killed off, you know, fights to survive and is basically killed and, like, dumped into a, you know, a a ravine somewhere. But, uh, But Englehart makes a surprisingly good go at it, probably because Roy Thomas is essentially the game master of The Hunger Games leading into the 70s, so people who know him actually tend to do really well. Dudes like Archie Goodwin, who's kind of like the Peta Bismarck or whatever of uh, uh, of the Hunger Games, is a decent guy who is actually able to survive long enough. In fact, I think I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say, considering Archie Goodwin comes in from Warren, ends up writing issues of things like Power Man and Iron Fist, and by the end of the 70s is running Marvel's creator-owned imprint, uh, and is seen a, as a beloved figure forevermore. I would say that Archie Goodwin wins the Hunger Games of the 70s, and Jim Shooter is the the big, evil, unstoppable, badass character that just ends up getting set on fire at the very last act. So. That was stunning. <laughs> Actually stunning. <laughs> I didn't even talk about the Lean Wing Marv Wolfman uh, alliance that ends up taking out all kinds of creators. So. I also love that that was just from Marvel. <laughs> I know, like, I know. The same thing's happening over at DC. Yeah, but I <laughs> but wouldn't I quite know. Talk about it. Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I wouldn't be able to... to so why are so, uh, the 70s were brutal? The 70s were brutal, and I have to say I didn't really grok that until I read Don McGregor's introduction to Panther's Rage, where he talked about Panther's Rage, which was a 12-part epic he actually put it together in secret like he didn't he wrote all the solicitations and things in a way that it you didn't really catch on that it was one continuous book because he he knew there was no way that it would be allowed and the various other things that he did to deal with uh various jealousies and envy and thing he he actually he did amazing work but you know um but he never, you know. I mean, and he had then he had to leave. But uh, but yeah, I think seventies Marvel was an unbelievably brutal place in a way that just hearing Shooter's stories about it, Shooter's stories about Marvel in the seventies is way too much like reading somebody's memoirs about working in the porn industry in the 70s. You know what I mean? Like It's like, oh, we all had good fun, and then later after Linda Lovelace blew our everyone, we like took out our guns and shot at Jerry Conway. You know what I mean? It was just like creepy. <laughs> I love that you managed to cross the two over there. You crossed the streams and you made it really disturbing. Yes. Well, that's, that's what I do, Graham. Thank you. So, yeah. Okay. So, where where are we going with this? We, uh, we are we are done. We have reached my heart stop for this. Oh, okay. Okay. Fabulous. Um, right. We um, have yeah. so many questions left. Yes. On Twitter alone, we have questions from Tim Callahan, Cormac O'Connor, Daniel Schneider, Sean Witzke, Adam Nave, Daniel Schneider again, Alex Bernstein, Luke Sachs, Matt Miller, Only Josh, Only Josh. I don't know what your name, your other name is. Maybe that's because you're Only Josh. Uh, Rick Vance, right. Christopher Beckett, C. Conlon, and Stephen Williams. And, and that's not even getting to all the questions we have waiting for us at savagecritic.com yes. everyone we're really sorry we'll continue them next week 
going by our historical standard, it'll probably take two weeks to get to them all. <laughs> um, but this, but this was absolutely though, great. You can still yes. leave questions for us at Savage Critic, and I will probably... Yes. Actually, I probably won't ask for any more questions on Twitter, because we've got more than enough. No, exactly. Yeah, if you have a question and you want to answer it, please go to the thread that uh, Graham posted on savagecritic.com on April, April 25th. 25th. And it's yeah. called Don't Ask for Questions When You're the Big Question Mark or something. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually a blur reference that only I understand. Never okay, mind. So, so is that where the reference about big question mark comes from? No, I, I was listening to Don't Bomb When You Were the Bomb when I wrote the headline. Okay, but what was what was the question about you being in the pocket of... I, I think it's because I asked questions in the headlines of Blogger Newsarama. Right, but what was his question? Did it also reference big question mark? His question was, am I in the pocket of big question mark? Okay, so, but you wrote, he asked that question after you posted. No, he asked, he asked that question before I posted that. Oh my God. Okay, so, all right. Well, you've broken my <laughs> is brain. Your, Congratulations. Is blown? My mind is blown. So, yes, please leave us questions. We will see you guys next week. Thank you so much for all the questions. Thank you. Next week, I swear we'll try and speed through more. Bye. <laughs> I had to do it. Come on. I'm so glad you did. That's that believe me, that I live for that moment. That's where I'm like, okay, that's where I can Bye, start everyone. cutting it in. Yep, exactly. Perfect. Perfect. Nothing makes me happier. <laughs> <laughs>